I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. Baselayer is sponsored by Diginex and by its digital asset exchange, Equas. As an exchange, Equas is focused on delivering innovative product compliance, fairness, and most importantly, trust. In a time when institutional investors are beginning to seriously review digital assets for their portfolio, these are key elements necessary to build bridges to new investors. Equas currently provides digital asset spot trading and perpetual futures, and plans to soon offer dated futures and options. Parent company Diginex also provides capital markets advisory, asset management, and custody. To check them out, you can go to diginex.com and equos.io. That is E-Q-U-O-S.io. This is David, and this is your new episode of Baselayer. I have Amrit Kumar, the co-founder of Zilliqa, with me today. Amrit, how are you? Very well, thank you. How are you? Great. So looking forward to this, uh, we have not had many what we call layer ones on the show here. Zilliqa is a high throughput public uh, platform designed to scale to thousands of transactions per second. It is built to deliver performance, scalability, and security. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about it as it relates to other layer ones out there. We're going to talk about Zilliqa, their own smart contract design. We're going to talk about how they're getting to the throughput that they are. And again, that's important for people that are building on this to look for high throughput or high transactions per second. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, how they're doing all the things that they're doing there. But before we get too far down that rabbit hole, we always like to talk to our founders and the people that are coming on and figure out how they got to the point that they are today. So if you could give us a little bit of a, a backtrack, how did you get to the point of being a co-founder what really inspired you about decentralized and distributed systems to really become a, a builder in this space going forward? Yeah. So, um, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the show. Uh, my background is basically in research. So uh, I did my PhD uh, in at INRIA, which is the National Center for Research in Informatics in France. And this is where I was interested in looking into privacy and security of software systems. So, for example, how software, let's say an antivirus, uh, can be detrimental to your privacy, for example. So my focus area was mostly on those things. So understanding how data you know, is used by a certain software that you use in practice. Uh, by the end of my PhD, uh, which was around in 2013, uh, this was when you know, Bitcoin was becoming sort of popular among academic, academics. So they were interesting understanding what sort of properties Bitcoin has as a protocol and um, what it provides in terms of privacy as well. And this is where my interest into blockchains and Bitcoin started to grow. And by that time, I had finished my PhD and I was looking for the next opportunity. And I found that uh, there was a professor at uh, National University of Singapore uh, who was working on scaling blockchains. 
So I went over to, 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 I contacted him to see if there was any opportunity to working under him. And he said, yeah, sure. So I moved over to Singapore and this is where my, my work into blockchain sort of started. So I won't call myself a distributed system person, but I would more call myself a security person and a, an applied cryptography person. So, um, you know, ironically, you know, my, my advisor back then um, at uh, the university, he suggested that, you know, there's not much left in Bitcoin or blockchains uh, anymore. I mean, they don't, they're no more interesting, challenging problems. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, some of the privacy uh, blockchains were popping up. So Monero, Dash, and Zcash were just launching. They were roughly three or four months old for Monero, for example. So I was, I was really interested to understanding how, what sort of privacy you get from those uh, blockchains. And that was, that was kind of my entry point into, into, into blockchains happened. And it was the first sort of white paper that I read uh, was the Monero's white paper. And then I fall back to Bitcoin and then I try to understand, you know, how Bitcoin worked. So it was the other way around for me. So I first understood Monero and then went back to understand Bitcoin. And, but yeah, this, it was, it was a good experience with, you know, working on Monero and we published a paper uh, later on, uh, uh, which basically tried to understand uh, what sort of gap there is between the theoretical guarantees uh, that Monero provides as a protocol and what you actually get in practice. And we, for example, were able to show that almost 90% of transactions that ever happened uh, from, you know, since the birth of Monero were not private at all. So um, this was my entry. And then yeah, I just finished my, my work on Monero and I was looking for the next project to work on. And this is where my advisor chipped in and he said, uh, you know what, I'm working on this. Uh, so he, he and some of his PhD students were working on this uh, project around sharding. So basically a mechanism to scale, scale blockchains. And he had published a paper around this and he said, you know what, um, we have this academic paper, but we would like to commercialize it in some way. And so would you be interested in joining us as, as a co-founder for this, this, this scaling project? And that scaling project eventually became Zilliqa. So this is how I kind of got involved into, into blockchains and, uh, and into Zilliqa. And then soon afterwards into Zilliqa, together with some of my uh, earlier colleagues, uh, we designed the Zilliqa score architecture. Uh, I also implemented a portion of um, the code as well. So, uh, and, and wrote the white paper. So this, is, this was kind of my entry into, into blockchains and, and how we started. Uh, to work on silica. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. Let's start with sharding. Um, for those that are unfamiliar with it, we've had other founders on the show talking about sharding, the idea of taking large bits of information and distributing it out to a effectively decentralized and distributed operator network. Um, talk to us about what that is specifically. Obviously, my analogy, you know, please add to it, detract from it. Um, why is sharding the answer, if you will, to high throughput? And talk to us about the complexities of sharding, how to actually get something that was very large and then to cut into lots of little pieces and then bring it back together for something that's usable. Right. So, I mean, the way you see right now, uh, the most, let's say, the state-of-the-art chains like Bitcoin, the way the network works is you have a big group of nodes uh, that are basically machines uh, in the network, and they are validating transactions. So every time you send a transaction, that, that gets validated by almost all of them, basically. So this is very, so imagine this network having 10,000 of nodes. So they're very, it's very decentralized 
very distributed at the same time also very available so if even, even if one of the nodes goes down you still can have uh, some nodes uh, would be able, able to process your transaction so it's very secure very decentralized but also wasteful in some sense because imagine you yourself sending a transaction uh, that is worth one dollar and uh, and that that transaction has to be processed by each one of those ten thousand nodes so it's very, it's very sort of it's very secure it's very decentralized but also not very efficient as a network and the idea of sharding is to sort of improve the, upon this idea and and the basic the, the way it works in sharding is you instead of having this one big network of 10000 nodes you sort of divide them into smaller groups so for example you could have a group containing uh, so you could have 10 groups for example each containing 1000 nodes so in total you have uh, 10000 nodes and and the idea is that once you have sort of broken down this large network into smaller networks then you could apply this simple idea of divide and conquer so you could have all these smaller networks do things in parallel for you and then in the end you would be able to combine the results and then have a final final sort of state of the system so uh, in this case for example so let's say if you have a network with only let's say two shards then all my transactions will go to shard number 1 and all transactions coming from yourself david might go to uh, shard number 2 and this way what you're trying to basically do is you are basically dividing the load across different shards and and this is how you know my shard will be will be processing my transaction in parallel to your your shard and so my transactions and your transactions are basically being processed in parallel and this 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 ability to divide your network and be able to process transaction in parallel is what gives uh, sharding the ability to scale uh, and provide higher throughput right. so in sense so if let's say if you have one shard giving let's say a tps of transaction per second of let's say 100 then you by basically doubling it by adding one more shard so that's very simply put how how uh, block you know sharding works but of course there are a lot of complexities involved in this right and i don't want to have an overburden of complexities on people i want them to get inspired to learn about this so for those that are not familiar with Zilliqa from the outside, again, a lot of the listeners on the show are from the outside of the crypto native sandbox, if you will. So how would you describe it to someone that was first learning about different things? They might know about Bitcoin by now, but they are possibly still a little early on Ethereum and other layer ones out there that can do a lot of the transactions and a lot of the work that you're talking about. So how would you describe to someone who is just scratching the surface what Zilliqa is and what kind of the, dare I call it, the special sauce of it is? So again, the special sauce in Zilliqa is still being able to see an improved Bitcoin of some sort. Uh, so Bitcoin is 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 a system that allows people to send payment transactions so you can send five dollars to anyone uh, without requiring a centralized party to 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 intervene um, bitcoin you know similar to ethereum in some sense allows you to have generic uh, sort of applications running on this for example let's say if you want to have uh, uh, you know if you want to get into a, a bet with someone and say okay if tomorrow if it rains then I will pay you uh, $10. And you want to have this written as a, as a digital contract. And those sort of contracts can run on a network like, like Zilliqa. Now, the issue between, let's say, Bitcoin and, 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 and uh, a system like Zilliqa is that the more applications like this you have, uh, the more throughput 
uh, is, is sort of required by the network because then a lot of funny you know a lot of interesting things can can be built on top of such a network so i would say that the the main source secret source is to is that zilliqa is is a platform that allows people to run arbitrary applications and at scale at the same time those applications uh, may potentially uh, hold a lot of money so for example if you let's say if you have a betting contract uh, that betting contract may have a lot of money in that contract and you want to make sure that that the money is safe and and that comes through a, a design of a smart contract language that allows you to write those dapps in a very safe manner right let's get a little deeper into that so i've tried to educate people about the differences between bitcoin the bitcoin blockchain and things like ethereum other layer 1s this idea of state that bitcoin is something that does not have state whereas ethereum and other layer 1s have state basically meaning it has a memory or has the ability to as you say redact things that might be in a smart contract talk to us about that as it relates to zilliqa yeah so technically speaking bitcoin as a system also has a state and the basically the state of the bitcoin system is all the unspent uh, transaction outputs so those so let's say for example when i send uh, my bitcoins to you your bitcoin will be will appear as a transaction output and that transaction output basically defines the state of bitcoin in some sense but obviously the state is very simplistic in the sense that uh, the state of the system basically says that this this person has these many tokens that he can spend these many bitcoins that he can spend but that's all uh in a more complicated system such as zilliqa or ethereum where you can have arbitrary contracts running you have to have a sort of a generalized uh state so instead of just saying that okay my you know your state is not just about a banking you know a state in a in a bank where every account has a balance so it could be more than that right and this is where those states in zilliqa and ethereum are more generic so for example my state could have my balance it could also contain for example all the let's say other tokens that i may have all the other let's say coupons that i may have collected all the other let's say you know contracts that i may have deployed so there are a bunch of other things that could have been that could be a part of of the state of a zilliqa or ethereum ecosystem or as a state so the state in a, in zilliqa or, or a smart contract platform in general is much more complicated i would say uh, than a bitcoin that can than, than a bitcoin's uh, state and so as people are drawing comparisons you know ethereum versus zilliqa both on the consensus proof of work correct yeah so currently both are proof of work uh, there's a slight uh, sort of subtlety in in case of zilliqa where we use proof of work uh, only to sort of select nodes in the network and those nodes once this once they are selected uh, they run a classical bft protocol so a mechanism where people have to vote on certain decisions which is not the case in case, in case of ethereum so ethereum and bitcoin are purely proof of work zilliqa is i would say a hybrid of proof of work and a bft protocol okay and let's talk about governance so this is another area that has been a talking point amongst uh, other different projects out there we talked about that briefly before we started speaking today um we saw some revolution if you call it that this year with projects like compound with their specific governance token governance is becoming very important as we see a move to real decentralization and i say that in kind of air quotes we are cognizant of the fact that a system can start centralized just to get it going if you will and then the idea 
the the mission is obviously to decentralize it further. It's not easy necessarily to start fully decentralized, and that might actually be a little bit of you know obviously uh, euphoria. Um, and so those are my terms and those are my phrases. Obviously, that you know you can take that for what it is. But what we are seeing is that what we saw with Ethereum is that as you know the CFTC opined about this as well too, is that it did start as more centralized and it has moved to decentralization, and so. Governance is a very large part of that, how you are able to have the operators out there, the validators out there, those that are actually in the system vote on these things uh, that are improvements, things that make the system run better and faster. Talk to us about your governance. Yeah. So this is this is a very important topic because um, governance has, you know, has changed its flavor, I would say, um, you know, over the last two or three years. So initially, you know, when Bitcoin came in, governance was very sort of ad hoc. You know, people used to argue on on, on Reddit and all those uh, channels, and then had to make a decision, and then the core team would, would the core Bitcoin uh, would implement those those changes. And and after that, we saw sort of a more formalized uh, projects and platforms dedicated on and selling the value proposition that governance is important. On chain governance is important. For example, this is where uh, Tezos, for example, came into came into play. And then after that, uh, so Tezos still was, if, if you look at the way Tezos was pushing, it was more about, we can make protocol changes based on the, the decisions of the community. And at the same time, also, it was, you also saw staking come into play. And that also had a role into play in, in, in the overall governance, because in a, in a purely proof-of-work-based network, there are different parties with, which are holding on to different things. For example, let's say in, in case of Ethereum, of course, everyone holds potentially let's say ETH, but they are developers, then they are miners, and then they are you know, other people who are involved in this ecosystem, for example, VCs, who are supporting uh, application development on top of their platform. And so there has to be a unite, you know, some, some token or something that could unite them all. And that was sort of through, through staking, because then you clearly could see that people who had invested in terms of stake um, had one common denominator across all these parties. So, you know, validators would stake, people who hold or who have bought tokens would stake, would stake. people who are developers, most of them also have tokens and they, they also stake. So the staking also sort of had a, a crucial role to play in, in defining this governance mechanism for, for some, of, some of the projects, including Tezos. And then we have slowly seen transition from uh, governance at the at the protocol layer to governance at the app layer through, uh, as you mentioned, Compound, where it was I mean, even for Maker, for example. So you 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 saw that um, you know in some of these applications, those tokens were not just purely for governance, but also for uh, to encourage people to provide liquidity, and that was also a very powerful powerful message to send across, which is. You can come in and also uh, vote on certain proposals. At the same time, if you do a certain activity, then you'll be rewarded with, with that with that token, and that's again very powerful. And this is also something that we are also trying to do with 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 Zilliqa, where uh, we traditionally we didn't have uh, any governance uh, mechanism. Obviously, you know, for precisely the same reason as you mentioned, which is, you know, when you're just starting up, and if you have to have reached consensus among ten thousand people, then it's going to be a very, very slow process for you to move forward. 
So at some point of time, initially at least, you want to have centralized control and later on uh, slowly make it make it uh, more decentralized. And this is the kind of state we are in right now where we have launched our minute. Our minute has been a year old. And now we are looking into mechanisms in which we could we could build a, a governance uh, protocol. So what we have done is we have we are issuing governance tokens along with staking. And the way governance tokens are issued sort of captures a few fundamental things. For example, how much stake you hold in the system, how long you are staking, how frequently you interact with the network, and that sort of decides how much, how many governance tokens you get. So it's it's very similar to sort of the LP tokens or governance tokens that you see in the DeFi space as well. But the, the key difference right now is that once you have issued a governance tokens at the protocol layer, many application development uh, developers could also use that, that governance layer token to, uh, to operate on. So it's not just, for example, if you're building a MakerDAO-like product and you want to use collateral, then use ETH, but you could also now you use a governance token based on the platform layer as your app layer governance as well. So that's also, I feel, very powerful. All right. Talk to us about use cases. Um, we've seen other layer ones out there that have theoretical and also proven high throughput that are focusing on things, not just DeFi, but focusing on gaming, focusing on, you know, NFTs, focusing on other aspects out there that require a higher throughput, um, that are more performant than say some of the layer ones they're just using Ethereum um, that might not necessarily need that higher transaction throughput. Talk to us about what your use cases that you've seen thus far uh, for Zilliqa. So I would say the first and the most uh, prominent application that we saw that saw the huge demand in terms of transaction volume that it was able to attract uh, was uh, Unstoppable Domains, which is a domain name system uh, based on blockchain. So if you're familiar with Ethereum, or Ethereum has ENS, and um, so we have this called uh, unstoppable domains. So we saw we saw huge transaction volume coming through that uh, through that single application alone, and uh, we are seeing comparing that with some of the other chains, and the numbers were were pretty off the charts. Of course, not as high as Ethereum, but we're seeing uh, quite a few numbers there. And and slowly we we also had a few games initially, but we we realized that. It's, it's also depends on the community that you have. Uh, some community is very focused on certain angle and this, there may not be enough diversity in a certain community. So in our case, we felt that um, for some reasons, the, the, the Chinese community that we had in our, in our broader Zilliqa community was interested in gaming, but no, not so much the non-Asian sort, of, um, sort of group. Uh, but we, we had, uh, let's say two, um, Two gaming applications running on top of Zilliqa, but it was it was a sort of interesting observation to me to to, to basically it reflected that you know different community need different things. Uh, then we also saw, for example, some uh, very recently uh, we are we have launched a stablecoin which is Singapore dollar backed stablecoin, and um, if you see around, most of the stablecoins today are very are USD backed or for obvious reasons because you know um, because of reserve uh, currency of the world. But uh, we are also trying to see if, if you look at the Asian market, especially the South Asian market, it's, it's very different from the Western world. Um, you still have around 60 to 65% of people which are either underbanked or unbanked. And they are trying to explore blockchains to be able to find ways in which um, it will be easier for them to be able to have access to banking-like services at least. 
And so there are several startups in that in that region which are trying to understand how blockchains would be able to help to be able to help. So they would like to build sort of a network. Uh, so there's a company called PayFast in, in in Indonesia, for example, where they are trying to build a network of sort of intermediaries that sit between a client and a bank. And why do they exist? Because those intermediaries, you know, you, if you are living in a in a city pretty far from let's say your main capital, then you have very limited access to banking services. And they are looking into how stable coins, for example, could be used to uh, to provide those banking services to to those people. Especially because these intermediaries, they do not have a banking license on their own. Right. And so uh, we are also looking into those uh, you know initiatives that are very specific to that region. You know the Southeast Asian region, because we feel that the problems there are quite different from uh, the problems that you see in in Europe or in America. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about as we're wrapping up. Talk to us about the roadmap for the next six to twelve months. What are some things that, as we're keeping our eyes and ears open about Zilliqa, what are some of the things that we should be watching out for? Yeah, so we are look. We are seeing very. So we have recently launched a Singapore dollar stablecoin. We have launched a, a Uniswap like Dex on top of our platform, and soon after the launch, we saw quite a few interesting sort of. Tokens being launched on top of on top of Zilliqa, and that's sort of I see as a way to that will take us to the next step, where you could imagine, for example, people building arbitrage uh, bots, people building solutions where you could lend from one as one, let's say, you could borrow Zilliqa and be able to stake and then take returns from that, then pay back uh, your interest. Uh, we are also um, have seen interest from from the community in building. Um, you know, a stable coin, a programmatic stable coin, uh, a la MakerDAO, and so a lot of activities are still uh, sort of focused around uh, finance and fintech. Uh, but we have also companies, uh, a sister company that's working on defining and designing a, a sort of a supply chain for advertising. So that's also an area that we're looking into. That's great. Where can people find out more about Zilliqa? So I think they're most active on Twitter. So uh, follow us on on Zilliqa Twitter, and uh, the entire community is. And, and the team members are always active uh, on both Twitter and Telegram if you have any questions. Outstanding. This was Amrit Kumar from Zilliqa, a layer one that is working to effectively look at some new solutions, especially using sharding and looking at ways of creating higher throughput uh, for other applications to be built on it. Amrit, thank you so much for joining us today, and we'll be in touch soon. Thank you very much, David, for inviting me over. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the best digital asset event and media production companies that I know of. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into digital assets, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. You won't be disappointed.